said that really weird. Coming up! <laughs> Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 195 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I would like you all to join me in welcoming rescue rattos Vic and Bob into the Zunilliums fold. Oh, I didn't know about Come this. Come on in. The water's warm. It's all Hannah Dunleavy's fault. Sorry. <laughs> no, thank you. It's a delight to have the world's tiniest monkeys again. Where do they come from? They've been rescued. Someone bought them for their kid for uh, Christmas and it turns out kid quite scared of rats. So yeah, we <laughs> le- liked them when they were kittens, but as they got bigger and their tails got longer, it was like, oh, these freak me out. So yeah, mum is heavily pregnant and like, I don't need another job. So we swooped in and now have two rattos again. Can I ask, when you say it was my fault, is it because I sent you that article that suggested that people who owned rats weren't necessarily proud of their pets in the same way that cat and dog owners were? It was absolutely that because I was outraged because they're glorious pets and I will tell everyone that they're glorious little furry companions. And then I was like, oh, and I miss not having rats. And then I was like... I wonder if any rats need a home. And then while Gary was away, I was bombarding him with little rats that needed home. And lo and behold, we now have two rats. <laughs> Glad to be of service. I'm Hannah Dunleavy. And at the weekend, I had to give my date of birth to a delivery driver. And his response was, and I don't know if I can encapsulate the sheer earth shakingness of his answer or of his surprise. His response was, oh, Wow. Now, I was intrigued because we have a a rough script in front of us. And I was like, oh, wow. I don't know how Hannah's going to say he said this because it could be all sorts of ways that you would say it. I can still hear it. I can literally still hear it in my head. It was so clear. And it wasn't in that cheesy, oh, wow, like, here's a bit of patter I have because you gave me a tip about how you don't look however old that is. I was going to ask, is that what he was driving at? No, I don't think so. It was like I had said... I was born... In the 7th century. On, on Mount Everest or something. Do you know what I mean? It was like, oh, wow. Like he'd literally never met anyone born in the 70s before. Okay, so it was less that he was surprised at your age, but more surprised that anyone was that age. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was going to ask him, but I, I preferred to just sit and obsess about it for the rest of the evening instead. Oh, wow. I remember being 32... And meeting some girls when I was in America and they were like 25 and they were like, how old are you? I said, I'm 32. And they were like, oh, wow, you don't look that old. And I was like, it's because I'm not that old. What are you talking about? <laughs> 32, for fuck's sake. I'm not like 9,012. Yeah, <laughs> I would suggest, if anything, that, that maybe that's what he was suggesting. Yeah. That I didn't look like I was that old. But like I say, I kinda do. So I don't I don't <laughs> really... hello, hello for the listeners, how old are you? Uh what's the maths on that? I am forty eight. Oh wow <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yep. What year were you born in, Hannah? Fifteen twenty two. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> I'm Jennifer and I am technologically challenged. I think you're cursed. Should we just skip on? (laughs) I think the only thing I have to say about this is if I move away from my microphone and actually scream. So um, all I'm going to say is if a John Lewis engineer tells you to fix your own laptop, it's easy. That's a direct quote. Don't do it. Don't do it. Wise words from our third most ancient podcast host there. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, our resident music buff, Liz Buckley, is talking rhinestone queen, 
Dolly Parton. I speak to comedian and standard issue fave Rachel Paris about Advice from Strangers and her new book, the conveniently titled Advice from Strangers. Lovely. She was in the back of a car. Ooh. Yeah. She's a busy woman, but she managed to fit us in. <laughs> Bless her. In Journey Off the Blocks, shit gets real at Chelsea and what the what is going on in the England women's cricket team. And in Rated or Dated, grab your hankies. We're watching 1997's The English Patient. Yeah, when I revealed to you two, I started crying in the first five minutes. Hannah did warn me to pace myself. <laughs> yes. But first, yes, that galloping sound you can hear is all four horsemen. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Opening the door onto the news like a guy accidentally walking into a war council. was very pleased I wasn't that man for about 12 different reasons. Yeah. Do you know, when I saw that on the news this week, and I will explain it to people, it made me really miss my dad because I knew it's the sort of thing that he would have found absolutely hilarious. <laughs> you don't actually miss your parents at the time you think that you would miss them, which is weddings and, you know, Christmas. You miss them or I miss my dad when I see some just ludicrous thing happening in the background of a news <laughs> thing. And I know that. And to prove it, I always put it on Twitter and it only ever gets about five likes because it's just something that me and my dad would love. So... They were talking about Lukashenko on Channel 4 News, who's like the president of Belarus and Putin's only friend now. And they had this footage of him and Putin in this at this big table and there was this whole bank of screens of people that they were talking to. And over it, Krishnan Guru Murphy's talking about power plays and Moscow and it's all really dramatic. And then in the middle of this video, this guy just opens the door and then literally you see him go, oh, fuck, <laughs> close it. And I just, it was just amazing. I'm just waiting for him to turn around and go, oh my God, where do you think Olga's retirement party is then? <laughs> or the toilet. <laughs> he just, yeah, he just said to his mum or his wife or whatever, hang on, I'm just going to go into another room and finish this call. <laughs> and there he was. He's probably dead now, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, we shouldn't be laughing, Hannah. He probably is. No, we shouldn't. I'm going to start with a quote, oft credited to Tony Benn, but probably first said by Scottish journalist Neil Asherson or potentially Tommy Cooper, but actually Tim uh -huh. Vine. Point is, it's a good quote. The way a yeah. government treats refugees is very instructive because it shows you how they would treat the rest of us if they thought they could get away with it. Right then, so fair to say the way our government treats refugees in general, and mm. indeed specifically right now Ukrainian refugees, is appallingly shitty and morally indefensible. Agreed. Thank you. Since Russia's invasion, 22,000 Ukrainians have applied for UK visas and only a few more than 1,000 have been issued. Which is not surprising because... Yeah, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> because the government has been getting away with appallingly shitty and morally indefensible treatment of the British population, us, the people it's supposed to work for, for a long old time. You're listening to us, so I'm going to assume you don't need proof, but here's some anyway. Number one, where the fuck has Sue Gray gone? If Agreed. I'm just going to leave a tape that says that <laughs> every three minutes and go and make a cup of tea. What's happening with that inquiry? Because as relatively small, and I am putting that in inverted commas, as Partygate can feel in comparison to some of the tricks the scarmy fucknuts in charge have pulled, for a brief moment, it felt like it could be their undoing. Mm -hmm. Even the truest bluebacker will have known someone who lost someone to COVID or lost someone to COVID themselves, which made Johnson and his cronies suitcase of wine, big bag of bad behaviour and sack of contempt a great leveller. And yet... 
It's more than a month since Johnson received his Met Police questionnaire. No fines have been handed out and the Met are apparently still sending out paperwork. Well, come on, Mickey, there's a war on. Yes, indeed. It seems that before Russia invaded Ukraine, Johnson faced political danger, not least from factions of his own party, who appeared to be sharpening their daggers. Now, though, a cabinet minister told BBC political correspondent Ian Watson that the war in Ukraine has changed everything, and he believes everything, everything, and he believes Johnson's leadership is safe. I've said it before: the man is Teflon. Number two, the cost of living crisis. We've talked recently on the Bush Telegraph about the cost of living crisis engulfing, if not drowning, huge swathes of our population. So I will condense this to its starkest point. Kids are going to school ill-clad, hungry and cold. This situation is already untenable, having become increasingly so over the last decade, but it is set to get worse. For some, it will be fatal. But come on, Mickey, there's a war on. Yeah, I know, I know. And in the same way it's proven a useful distraction for Partygate, there's also a narrative shift, effectively placing the cost of living crisis on the war in Ukraine's doorstep. A deliberate narrative? I couldn't possibly say. And yes, I am nodding. There's no doubt that the atrocities happening in Ukraine have exacerbated the situation, but it is vital, and I mean that in its rawest sense. We remember the rises in energy, heating, water, council tax, broadband, mobiles, food and national insurance were all in place before Putin invaded Ukraine. And all of that is morally indefensible. Labour leader Keir Starmer called for a windfall tax on energy companies because right now maybe energy profits going down is better than energy bills going up. Mm -hmm. And Johnson et al. literally laughed in his face. That quote again. The way a government treats refugees is very instructive because it shows you how they would treat the rest of us if they thought they could get away with it. They very clearly don't give a shit, mate. Amen. And more on that later. Mm. So, needless to say... There is a lot of terrible news coming out of Ukraine and I could just rend my clothes for 10 minutes, but I'm only going to be repeating other people's reporting and you'd be better to hear it from them. Agreed. It's my turn Uh, now. (laughs) (laughs) As I speak, we should make an app that just says agreed when you press a button. Agreed. (laughs) As I speak, the UK government is announcing a scheme to allow UK citizens to sponsor Ukrainian refugees, which sounds promising. But without having seen the details or any expert responses to it, all I can say is that I am cautiously optimistic. I mean, and surely that optimism isn't going to be dashed against any rocks at all, Hannah. No. So I thought we could take a little jaunt around some other stuff happening in the UK and around the world, which is actually quite a lot. I can't promise it'll all be positive, but there is some good news at the end. Try to hold that in your heads. (laughs) Let's start in South Korea, which has a new president, Yoon Suk-yul. But don't toot your party blower just yet. In the past, he has blamed feminism for low birth rates. That's what the world needs. Some other nefarious fucker. (laughs) Bravo. In Northern Ireland, victims of sexual, psychological and physical abuse of children in care finally received an official apology for what was described as vile and unimaginable abuse carried out for more than 70 years. I say finally because this was held up for about five years by the closure of Stormont and also by decades by the usual shit. Yeah. Michelle McIlveen, Education Minister, said, and I quote, Today we say that we are sorry. We did not ensure these homes were all free from hunger and cold 
from mistreatment and abuse. It was the state's responsibility to do that and it failed you. We neglected you, rejected you, we made you feel unwanted. It was not your fault. (sighs) Survivors, however, rejected the formal apology by four religious orders, because of course, and Bernardo's, and called on them to pay compensation. Like sorry would cut it. Over in America, remember the Jesse Smollett case, Mick? Mainly because of you struggling to pronounce his name, but let's definitely yes. <laughs> this time we're going with we're going with Jesse Smollett. I mean, I may change it several times. Jesse Smollett. <laughs> yeah. Back in December, the actor was found guilty of five charges of felony disorderly conduct after making false reports about a hoax attack. Last week, he was back in court for sentencing, and there were scenes. (laughs) Judge James Lynn told Smollett, quote, You've turned your life upside down by your conduct and shenanigans. Great use of the word shenanigans. That is an incredible use of the word shenanigans. And also, I feel like he could have said that to me on a number of occasions. (laughs) (laughs) He sentenced... We're going to put that on a t-shirt along with the the wood (laughs) leftover pizza. And also on the app that just says agreed, just like when I get a message. I'm like, you've turned your life upside down by your conduct and shenanigans. (laughs) He sentenced Smollett to 150 days in jail, 30 months of probation... And $145,000 in restitution and fines. That's approximately £110,000. Following the sentence, Smollett shouted, quote, I did not do this. I am innocent. I could have said I was guilty a long time ago. I mean, no shit, mate. I think that's why the sentence was so harsh. What? <laughs> the actor also said many times, I am not suicidal, adding, If anything happens to me when I go in there, I did not do it to myself before being led away with his fist in the air. Shenanigans-tastic. He loves the shenanigans. He does. Can't get enough of the shenanigans. Back here in the UK, former Speaker of the House John Burkow was deemed a bully by a report by the Commons Independent Expert Panel, causing a lot of debate on Twitter about whether or not his victims had made it all up. I've only got two things to say about this. Number one. In one. (laughs) Is that a bully pun? I like it. It is a bully pun. (laughs) In one. Yes, I've seen that thread. You can stop sending it to me. In two. (laughs) If you want to help people who are being bullied, the best way to go about it is not to insinuate that other bullying victims are lying. Just because the case involves someone you know or like or share a political aim with or a podcast with. (laughs) And bully special prize. (laughs) Bully special prize is that that report, Mick, was called The Conduct of Mr. John Burkow, which sounds like an episode of Jonathan Craig. I would like the follow up to be called The Shenanigans of Mr. John Burkow. (laughs) And there's more. Do you want to know what's been happening in Australia, Mickey? Fuck it. Why not? Tell me. Actually, I'm not sure you do. Okay. (laughs) People returning to their homes after devastating floods across the southeast of the country have found deadly snakes and spiders driven inside by the floods and now nesting in sofas and beds. You heard me. What sort of snakes? Pythons. Fucking pythons. (laughs) Whoa. Venomous red-bellied snakes and eastern browns. Now, what's an eastern brown? Checks notes. Oh, it's okay. It's just the second most poisonous snake on earth. 
I'm sure this will be of little comfort to the poor folks of Sydney and Brisbane, but it could be worse. It could be one worse. <laughs> and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed with him. Am I right? I'm just pretending I've got some coconuts. <laughs> Do you want to know, after 15 years in a Catholic education... I can quote Revelations not because of that, but because of Johnny Cash. I thank you. I think that's it's a better reason uh, than yeah. God, to be honest with you. My friend Amber is Australian. She lives in Melbourne and she messaged me the other day. She'd found a spider and she wasn't happy. And she was like, I kill them and I feel bad. And she's like, but everyone kills spiders, don't they? Tell me you kill spiders so I don't feel bad. And I messaged back and I was like, I don't kill spiders, but over here, they don't kill us. So I think yeah. it's different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I cured my fear of spiders was to go to Australia. I thought it just meant just killed all of them. No. So after all of that, Mick, I'm guessing you are up for some good news. Hit me with some good news. Well, this isn't just good news. This is fucking spectacular. Oh, yeah. Especially if you like history. Tick. Shipwrecks. Tick. And mad bastard stories of endurance. Tick. And that is that a team has found the wreck of the endurance. Whoop, whoop. Hey. The ship abandoned by Sir Ernest Shackleton and his crew in 1915. They were on a perilous mission to reach the South Pole by travelling over the then unmapped terrain of East Antarctic. As historian Sam Willis reminded us on Twitter, it was an expedition that started with an advert placed by Shackleton that read, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful. Now that's how you place an ad. (laughs) (laughs) The wreck was found almost 10,000 metres down, that's almost two miles, on the Antarctic seabed. The depth and cold meant that not much life survives there and consequently the vessel was almost perfectly preserved as incredible footage of it lying at the bottom of the Weddell Sea showed. Mm, It's so cool. It was clean. (laughs) It was incredible. I'm thinking of dunking my house two miles below sea surface to see if it works. (laughs) (laughs) See if it comes up better, yeah. And that is where the wreck will remain. A team funded with a $10 million donation from an anonymous private individual used a South African icebreaker and polar research vessel and were accompanied by TV historian Dan Snow, who has loads of stuff about it available on his History Hit channel. Marine archaeologist and expedition director Messen Bound said... That sounds like Nessun Dorma when I was aware of that. I want you to sing his quote. (laughs) <laughs> Messon Bound said of the discovery, without any exaggeration, this is the finest wooden shipwreck I have ever seen by far. And I've got just one thing to say to Shackleton. You have turned your life upside down by your conduct and shenanigans. <laughs> I thought it was going to be agreed. <laughs> and agreed. <laughs> yeah. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we look at the many attempts to chip away at women's rights, continuing at a pace that means that womb in shackle statues should be finished in no time. Hello, Missouri. Can we chat about a woman's right not to die senselessly? 
Yeah, yeah, your guy, state rep Brian Zeitz, erroneously calls it an anti-abortion bill. Oh, okay, cool, cool, you're with me now. I mean, I hope you're with me rather than with Zeitz, who is currently getting his arse served to him for putting forward a bill that would ban abortion for ectopic pregnancies. Just so you know, ectopic pregnancies occur when a fertilised egg implants outside the uterus and they're not viable and they are potentially life-threatening. In fact, they are the leading cause of maternal mortality in the first trimester, according to a study published by American Family Physician. If left untreated, they can rupture internal tissue, cause heavy bleeding and pose significant health risks. Now, Zeitz is arguing that his bill has been, quote, misrepresented and Mm. he'll offer an amendment next week to clarify the language. Uh, sure? I, for one, am excited to see what linguistic gymnastics seats has in his arsenal, given the bill specifically cites abortions performed to end an ectopic pregnancy as covered under the proposed restrictions. Now, it'll come as no surprise that should Roe versus Wade be overturned, and yes, of course that rumbles ominously on, Missouri is one of 25 states where abortion would be automatically banned in all or most cases. Indeed, Missouri anti-abortionists are also pushing to stop residents from crossing state lines to obtain an abortion. More news on that as it happens. As for Zeitz nonsense, well, it's not the first time men in power have proven not to have a fucking scooby about how women's bodies work. Hmm. Really? (laughs) Citations needed? (laughs) Well, citation this, motherfucker. (laughs) Uh, Back in 2019, Ohio lawmaker, state rep John Becker, with a little help from anti-choice lobbyist Barry Sheets. What a name, Barry Sheets. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he does. Introduced legislation that would have prohibited insurers from covering abortion services, but provided an exception for doctors to re-implant an ectopic pregnancy into a woman's uterus, a procedure that isn't medically viable. Don't let that stop you. You know, Becker eventually conceded he hadn't studied whether such a thing would be possible. Big of him to concede that, Hannah. <laughs> really? 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 Big of him. Yeah, he sounds. He sounded like an expert, from yeah. what I could tell. Shame he didn't concede to being a festering cocksaw who shouldn't be anywhere near women or lawmaking. But there we go, and indeed here we are again. <sighs> John Ronson did a series of podcasts for, I think maybe Audible. You'll certainly be able to find them, or maybe they're on BBC Sounds. I think he did a BBC Sounds about, one about the culture wars, and one of them is about the anti-abortion issue, and you know how nobody really gave a fuck about abortion as a religious issue until about the seventies. Don't listen to me. Listen to the podcast, and they'll explain it to you. But the long and short is, you know, this idea that that Jesus doesn't want us to have abortions is, you know, citations needed. Agreed. Hello, Hannah here. It is 9am on a Monday morning and it's rare I do an interview this early and there is one reason I'm doing it and that is the excellent Rachel Paris. Rachel, how are you? Hello, I am all right, thank you. I am currently in a car travelling from Leeds to Glasgow. The glamour of touring. Exactly that. Who said there's no glamour in show business? I know, but this is a real real treat because really the last few days I've been on... Yesterday was like a rail replacement bus oh, in Rochdale and, you know, a travel lodge into a rail replacement bus service. But now, because I'm going to a TV show, they've laid on an actual car to pick me up at six in the morning. So Wowzers. this is luxury. 
Now, I'm looking at my list of questions for you, and they basically aren't lists of questions. They're just a long list of things that I need to say congratulations to you about. (laughs) So I'm going to start with Advice from Strangers, which is your book that is out this week. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's been a while coming. I started writing it in 2020. Is that right? Yeah, 2020. And it's finally coming out. And I'm really excited for people to read it. Am I right in thinking it started when you had to give a commencement speech and you actually solicited advice from strangers? Yes. It all started in 2017 when I was asked to give a graduation speech to my old girls' school, you know, going out after prize giving into the world to give one of those inspirational speeches that you see on TV. And I thought, oh, God. I mean, yes, I do want to do that, but what on earth have I got to say in terms of, you know, advice and inspiration? And I did have a year's warning about it, so I thought I could kill two birds with one stone, which was I had also to come up with an idea for an Edinburgh show. So I thought, well, I can get advice, ideas from my audiences, and I can use writing the speech as an idea for the show. So basically for a year... I asked my audiences to submit on those scraps of paper genuine bits of life advice and I would incorporate them into each show. But then it forward three years when I was asked to write a book and they said, have you got any ideas of what to write a book about? And I said, well, what I have got is, because I kept them because they're precious, you know, they're really interesting. Yeah. I've got a cupboard full of genuine little scraps of paper full of advice from strangers all over the country. So that seems like a good jumping off point. So every chapter uh, is inspired by, uh, is, is named after a bit of advice from a stranger. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and assume some of that advice was useless. Yeah, of course. Some of it's <laughs> terrible. Um, and actually, some of the chapters are deliberately, I've chosen advice that I really disagree with. So it ranges hugely from funny, jakey ones like Never Eat Yellow Snow, someone said acquire as many guinea pigs as possible um to things like uh, be kind smile whenever possible both of which were ones that i argue with agreed um, and interrogate very viciously <laughs> uh, um you know don't smile wherever possible why would you especially you know, advice uh, for a woman to give that advice exactly, to a woman yeah well exactly exactly so i go into you know all of the stuff about what this means in terms of telling women to smile uh, and also what it means in terms of the kind of a different, it's problematic for men and for women in different ways, like telling women to smile because of the, you know, ornamental quality and then having to be happy for your enjoyment and your comfort. And then for men, the kind of stoical smile of like men being expected not to break down and not to show their emotion in a different, in a slightly different way uh, that's so problematic. So, some of them are more sort of, you know, serious chapters about that, and some of them are just very silly. I've got one chapter that is just one line long, but the advice was don't try to fold a, uh, a fitted bed sheet. And I just simply said, absolutely, <laughs> roll it into a ball and walk away. I couldn't agree more, yeah. And then just yeah. <laughs> hope that lying on top of it will get the creases out of it. Exactly. You, you, you don't need that to be folded, you'll be fine. Can I ask you, what was the best bit of advice you saw? I think I, I really like one that was only indulge in things that you really like because I 
think that, I think that's a really good way of summing up life balance, basically. Yeah. Um, so that could, you can apply that, from, and it's, I'm sure it's partly because I grew up Methodist, so I've got to think about moderation. <laughs> yeah. And I'm married to a teetotaler. That advice isn't saying don't indulge. Yeah. It's saying do indulge, but make it worth it. So it's the way of avoiding, you know, like going down rabbit holes and going crazy and being addicted to things. Um, it's a way of sort of finding balance, whether, whether you're talking about food or social media or, you know, drink or clothes. I think it's a very useful idea for everything to kind of find that, that balance your life at equilibrium i absolutely agree in fact it's interesting with food because i often find it because i live by myself i buy food yeah. and i don't like it and because i know there's going to be no one there else to eat it it's not going to be something yeah. i'm going to leave in the fridge i feel the, the an obligation to blow on with it and i think why don't you just stop eating this you're not even enjoying it yeah 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 exactly i talk about like you because like, i i really think it's not just about food but for us like I, about, I remember at uni our friends came up with because we put on like the obligatory like sort of two stone at uni yeah which was fine um but we realized it was it was just because we we started eating porridge with golden syrup as a dessert course to every meal in the day and as a snack between meals um and it was <laughs> Dear God. And basically, it was like, it was a very cheap way of having that, like, sugary yeah. like, niceness that we wanted. But why not actually have something nice? Yeah. Um, but not have it seven times in the day. <laughs> yeah. Have it, say, twice in the day, yeah. but make it actually uh, quite a nice <laughs> So, like, it's actually, it's the opposite of the, of the kind of abstemious quality that it sounds like. It's actually saying, no, do it properly. If you're going to have a treat, have a treat. Do it properly. Don't be half-assed about it. Advice kind of splits into two categories, doesn't it? It's there's there's what I would say practical advice, like the best advice I've ever been given. Sarah told me always, to, anyone who eats as messily as I do should always carry a spare top, and that has been <laughs> a really really useful piece of advice. There's also those sort of emotional platitude advice that people try to fit to their life and they just don't work. Oh, Absolutely, yeah. When I was trying to sort out the advice for the book, I divided it into categories because it fell very neat. It had like hundreds of these little slips. And I divided it into categories, sort of what you're talking about, like to ones that were platitudes, ones that were always do this, or ones that were always do this. Yeah. And there were a lot that were never do this, never do this. So there were positive ones and negative ones, funny ones and there were loads of kind of versions of be kind some less annoying than others some were like be kind to yourself some were just be kind some were nice some were like be nice to people you never know what someone's got to go home to yeah very you know really true and i like those ones yeah and like uh be nice to people when you're on the way up because you'll meet them again when you're on the way down (laughs) funny because i I suppose I picked up this advice like before the match report and when I was sort of, you know, uh, playing to fifty seaters um, in Edinburgh and I feel like people were warning me. <laughs> they were like, watch out. <laughs> um, a lot of like, don't worry about the things you can't control, don't sweat the small stuff. So I had about 20 different versions of don't sweat the small stuff, don't worry about things that you can't change. 
so yeah, there was there was all sorts of advice, and some of it was some of it was joyful. There was a lot of in the always is there was like always dancing your car, always shout wee when you're going downhill on a bicycle. Um, <laughs> Agreed. And like and in the nevers was uh, yeah never eat yellow snow, never pass up the opportunity for a wee, and also and some really depressing and cynical. Someone just put trust no cunt. <laughs> which I heard, which I heard in like a Scottish accent. <laughs> I was going to say I apologise for putting that one in there. Bye, <laughs> I, I would say actually, if, if the last two years has taught me anything, the world has given us a piece of advice in the last two years, which is if you want to do something, do it as soon as humanly possible because you don't oh, know yeah. when you might be able to do it again, and be that Absolutely. have that holiday. You know, go to that yeah. restaurant, whatever. Get, go and see that show. Get it done because we don't know what's. We really don't know what's around the corner. That's true. And weirdly, I, a piece of advice I got it wasn't that advice, which is good advice, but like it said, I think they've lost the piece of paper I'd given them, or they, or they haven't. Her husband had taken it or something like. But they wrote it on a piece of um, a Royal Mail will deliver your letter next week uh, slip that they found in their bag, and they put. Stay at home and everything will be okay. <laughs> and that was a really interesting piece of advice because obviously that was, it felt quite prophetic. That yeah. They wrote that in 2017 and I started doing this project just when everyone had to stay at home yeah. for the sake of everything being okay. Interestingly, and I've only thought about this over the last couple of weeks, the weird amount of people who mentioned Russia in R- their Really? Advice. There were loads of references to it. I mean, like, proportionately, there were loads. Uh, there was, like, never invade Russia in winter, save time, vote for Putin now, like, watch out for Russia or something. Like, yeah, there were, there were quite a few little Russian sort of references. I didn't really take any notice of at the time. I thought it was a bit odd, and I was like, oh, why are people being so weird about Russia? And then you look back. And, yeah. Yeah. Returning to my list of things I need to congratulate you for, your tour, All Change Please, which started pre-pandemic and is now back on the road. Yeah, I suppose technically it did, yeah. Like, because we got started doing previews for it in January 2020. And then it was meant to happen in spring and obviously got cancelled and postponed till the autumn, optimistically. And then obviously yeah. got postponed till 2021, till the spring, got postponed. And then I had a baby. So we had to postpone it again. So, yeah, I did a few of them last autumn uh, and I've got a few more right now pencils are moving around. So, yeah, it's been two two years in the making and we're finally on the road doing it and it feels good. Excellent. I was having a little watch of, of a video of yours on YouTube this morning in which you were doing oh, yeah. a rendition of, I don't know if it's still in the show, but at that point you were doing a rendition of all of the songs from... Um, the Greatest Showman in one song. Yes, actually, that one is in the show. And it that, made me laugh ends, a lot, Rachel. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it really did, yeah, it really sums up that kind of thing that I can't quite put my finger on about about those guys that write that and um, Dear Evan yeah, Hansen, the yeah. He- the heavy, yeah, the yeah. heavy inspirational number. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned, you've mentioned Little Billy, another reason I have to oh. say congratulations. Yes. Oh. How is he? Thanks. He's good. He's good. He's with my mum at the moment. Um, Having the time the of his time, life. Yeah, I mean, they spoiled both, rotten. She, she is 
a pedestrian and bless her, she loves him so much. So yeah, it's, it's been amazing. Like he's, he just is really cute and lovely. And it's been the first time, you know, being away from him probably for more than, you know, a few hours. And it's been hard, but you know what? Kind of great as well. Like I was all geared up to be all of the things that, you know, a bit of a wreck and heartbroken and yeah. missing him. And I do miss him, of course I do. But also it has honestly felt the last few days like kind of finding myself again. Yeah. It felt so amazing being on stage and being just toddling around by myself. Um, I think I needed it. So, yeah, I love I love amazing so much and it's been amazing to do my job as well. Yeah. <laughs> Because I, I spoke to, um, last week, the week before on the podcast, I spoke to uh, the First Lady of Iceland who had written a book about feminism in Iceland. And there, oh, wow. yeah. their women are allowed to take their kids to, to work with them. And oh, wow. I mentioned it to a friend of mine. And, she, and I said, that sounds great, doesn't it? And this is childless me. And she said, no, yeah. that sounds horrible, Hannah. She said, I get to work to get away from him. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really good point that I hadn't considered at all. <laughs> It's really interesting. I think the things about feminism, um, about like like progressiveness for mothers, is not a simple answer, is it? Because that's it. Because you go, oh, well, the progressive thing would be to say that mothers can take their babies anywhere with them. Yeah. But then you're like, oh, but that is fucking hard work for the mother, isn't it? Yeah. The act to do their job while looking after their baby. Yeah. Um, and actually, like so, so much of it comes back to actually. It's partly, of course, about steps for making things easy for mothers. But actually, if you sort out paternity care more and think of the fathers, then you can make it a more equal sharing role. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, partners, like just make it more equal between partners. Of course, it's good if you can take the baby into work, uh, into parliament, for example. You yeah. Know. Um, but, like, also, there needs to be alternative options. The child, I only found out, um, classic example of like, really getting on board with an issue when it happens to you. I came to do my taxes and I wrote the second half of my book after the baby had been born. And the only way I could ever have written the last bit of that book was through having a baby system. And it was such an obvious bit of like tax expense. You know, this is the job that I have to do during those months. And this is the, the thing that afforded me the ability to do it. Um, and I didn't realise that no childcare is tax deductible. None of it. It's mind-boggling that for everyone, like I spoke to uh, my accountant about it, and I was like, like even in, I suppose everyone must say this, like, even in this situation, yeah. you know, it's like obvious for me, it must be different. And they were like, no, I know it is mental, but it, you can't, not a penny of it is tax deductible. And how does that, how does that reflect, you know, on working mothers? How does that, how does that work with parents? Yeah. Like things like that. It just Caitlin Moran actually said something in her most recent book about like it sounds like an insane idea, but she said her proposal is like essentially pay pay mothers to look after their children, uh, even like a small amount. Basically, just so that the concept that looking after children is worth for doing it uh, it is time consuming, and that it's that of value is um, made normal. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, you know, it sounds like an outlandish idea, but I think in principle it's just saying 
we don't we don't value this and it makes it so much harder for women to get back to work. I have one more uh, congratulations, Rachel. That's that I read something that you wrote this morning when you talked about uh, when you were pregnant before you had Billy. And I just wanted to say excellent work for that because talking about stuff like that is hard but necessary, I think. I'm guessing Thank that's you. why you did it. Yeah, um, I was really obviously like in two minds. I definitely wanted to write about in the book. In fact, uh, it was when I was in hospital uh, when that was happening that um, I really, I basically had I had two book offers. Strangely, um, random point. One was a sort of Jane Austen academic kind of book, and one was had the opportunity to be more personal. Um, and it was when I was in hospital uh, with, uh, for the listeners that don't know what it was, it was a late miscarriage that I had in 2020, uh, and I was 21 weeks pregnant. Um, mm. And but it was this experience that made me know that I had to write this down and I wanted to write a part of the book. So that was one of the first chapters that I wrote, actually. Um, and they're the only chapters that are written in sort of diary form because they have to be written, you know, when we're in it. Yeah. And then in terms of, it, the more complicated decision was the idea of letting that be picked up by news outlets. Yeah. You know, uh, and it was, it was a tough conversation between my agents and the publishers. And they said, look, like what you put, they were trying to be kind <laughs> and, and they were kind. They were like, what you put in the book, is out there, you know, it's not the same as like when you you can sort of have a pact with a comedy audience that they won't take, you know, yeah. feel like it's between you and the audience in that room. Really, if you publish a book, that that is that story is out there. You're putting it out there for anyone to read who wants it and for anyone to sort of reprint, I think, who wants it as well. And it will be talked about. I, w- I was up for that. I am up for that. And then, so this weekend, You magazine were like, they wanted to talk about that story. And they had a few different options, but that was the one that they really wanted. And I thought, well, actually, I think I'm up for that because it is an experience, because it's quite an unusual, I think it's quite an unusual experience um, that I hadn't known that much about before it happened to me. Like what happens, you know, when you lose a baby that late in pregnancy, what you go through and what the NHS does for you during that time which is astonishing when new magazine has like edited it uh, quite very heavily you know which they had to and, and i i think they i think they did a good job but what they sort of had to miss out for the sake of their own story was how much of that chapter is dedicated to a love story to the nhs really yeah how well we were looked after in this just you know shittiest of circumstances i was really keen for it to be in the book and i I do think it's important for that story to to be out there, really, for for people to um, be, be aware be aware of it, I suppose, of what of what goes on, so that it's not a total shock if it ever happens to you. We had we had the support of um, Do you know Lou Conran? I do. Yes. Yeah. Lou was just incredible because um, same thing happened to her. Yeah. And she got in touch, or rather, I think Carrie had Lloyd put in touch with her. And it looked like that's the way it was going. She was, oh, bless her. She was just so, so kind and sent so many messages. Um, and there is just such a network of people who are, you know, just very, very kind, very kind. Yeah. 
Yeah, when she when she did the show about it, she was yeah worried about she couldn't really do her show in in bits, so she, it was really hard for her to yeah. get any previews or to try and test out the material. So she did a couple yeah. of people's houses, and she did one in my house. Um, she oh, did one in my lounge, and yeah, it was incredible yeah. because how she manages to put herself out there so much the strength of will she has is incredible if you're listening lou i love you yeah she's amazing i didn't i haven't actually seen that show i'd heard about it and thought before it happened to me i thought oh my god like i can't imagine like how can you find humor in that but you know it's happened to me you know yeah something so tragic is happening and yet the circumstances around it are normal everyday circumstances that are that can be funny like you you find that you just and i say this in the book like even in the depths of that you can't you, your your brain cannot be sad and crying every single second of every day through it no and there just are funny things that happen during it there was like the <laughs> some of the like the the staff coming in to like 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 change the medical bins or bring you dinner would say things that like some of them so awful but it was funny like they just like one of them just kept going oh you'll be fine baby will be fine baby will be fine okay good morning <laughs> like, right i mean okay well anyway. yeah oh this has been an absolute pleasure um am i are we allowed to say what tv program you're going to be on oh well yeah it's unusual so me and marcus are doing it hence my mum's book the first time we've both been away um and it's called the hit list on bbc one and it's like this you know prime time like family time show about music that neither of us know very well to be honest i should <laughs> say that um we uh but we're very pleased to do you know because we're more used to doing you know panel shows yeah and comedy shows and things like that but that kind of like prime time mainstream show is a bit unusual uh, we don't really know where we're at with it, but we'll see when we get there. Okay. And and if it's anything like when Sarah tells me she's recorded something, I look forward to seeing yeah. it on the TV in about 18 months' time. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's something, what was this something I recorded years ago that still hasn't come out? Um, I've never seen Sarah be on Celebrity Pointless, and she, she informs me she was, but I don't think it's ever oh, been on Celebrity this is a classic example. You know, I, it seems random as well. I don't even know if they released them in order of recording because, yeah, it can be years before it, it can be years before it comes out. I know what it was. I did um, a captured countdown in lockdown that still hasn't come out. Really? Um, so yeah. Well, those jokes will be topical, eh? With that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Advice from strangers is out this week. It is on the seventeenth of March. There are signed copies available from Waterstones if you want them, but it is also available from all good bookshops on 17th March. Excellent. Thank you ever so much for your time, Rachel. Thank you. Hello, I'm joined at my kitchen table by our resident music buff and all-round smasher, Liz Buckley. Liz, welcome. Hi, that's nice. (laughs) 
I like your sparkly hat. And I say that, listeners, because Liz and I are dressed top to toe in rhinestones, because this time we are talking 11-time Grammy-winning country music superstar and international treasure, Dolly Parton. 50 times nominated for Grammys. It's just too many. It's too much. She must just be like, oh, this again. (laughs) It's a lot. She's 76 years young. I don't think she'd like you mentioning her age, actually. Do you not think (laughs) I say that merely because she has just released her 48th album, which is called Run, Rose, Run. And it is inspired by the characters in Run, Rose, Run, a new thriller from James Patterson and Dolly Parton. Mm -hmm. There's no stopping her. No. 76, what? She doesn't care. She's probably done another album while we're talking. It's true. It's probably true. And, you know, saved another child from the path of an oncoming vehicle. (laughs) It actually happened, listeners, in 2019. (laughs) Have you listened to Run, Rose, Run? I have. Yes, I've done my homework. The NME rather snobbishly said it sounds exactly like you would imagine. <laughs> but I think that's a compliment. You know, like if you've actually got so much of a brand that you, you what would the new Dolly Parton album sound like? It would sound like you imagine it would. Imagine if she just sounded like Kanye West. <laughs> oh, I am now imagining. <laughs> We're both now dressed in full black phallocloth. <laughs> And probably she's talking to our ex-wives. But yeah, totally different podcast. <laughs> so like the songs on the album are called things like Big Dreams and Faded Dreams and Woman Up, Take It Like a Man. I love that. Take It Like a Man's in brackets. <laughs> it's perfect. And the, the women in it are called Annie Lee and Ruth Anna. And it's all written in a sort of like cartoonish country kind of style but in a way that's very very dolly because it's very self-aware but the thing i love about dolly is she, she doesn't really have a biography she's kind of got more of a nicely honed mythology that becomes her backstory mm. and whether it's true or not is anybody's guess really you know she is that mixture of being enhanced but also being incredibly approachable and real and you know like everybody feels like they sort of know her but she's a complete mystery at the same time so the the book is almost sort of written with the benefit of hindsight her industry experience but with a sort of tongue-in-cheek little lady on the run and little lady on the rise and it's fantastic you know she's basically her own manager in this Mm -hmm. so dolly is i strongly recommend people get the audiobook dolly does some of the voices amazing and there's lots of bits like you know the manager's wearing heels at 9 a.m who does that anyway (laughs) (laughs) and then there'll be a little comment like i better feet are black and blue as a woman speaking from experience but she i mean she handles it all brilliantly as you can imagine so like there's a bit where she feels a bit objectified she's in a record company meeting i say she the main character annie lee she feels a little bit objectified she says she feels like she's being looked up and down like they're buying a truck or something but then she goes on to say (laughs) that's how she describes herself and then she describes a man in the meeting like a sort of record company executive as having a baby's face with a pro wrestler's build oh that's that's gonna haunt So she's sort of looking a guy up and down also and saying, you're physically a bit strange. Then she sings her audition song with her eyes closed because she doesn't want to look at him. So, you know, she's she's kind of turning the tables, but in a very non-controversial way. It is like the NME says, it is like you'd exactly imagine it to be. So there's a bit where she drives off in a truck that she's just learned to drive because of her stepdaddy. And uh, a man's, you know, literally chasing after her, trying to chat her up or whatever. And she's on her way to her burgeoning career in this truck, and it's called Driven. 
<laughs> right. Okay. So this is what we're dealing with here. Yeah, it's kind of literal. There's also a song called Snakes in the Grass. <laughs> Where which, the rattlesnake noise. <laughs> yeah, and because you've got to watch your ass when you're yeah. in the music industry. You do. Fair enough. In a way, it's a bit of a shame that the album sort of needs the hook of the book. I think it does stand alone in its own right. But, you know, it's great. It's got Ben Haggard on it, Mel Haggard's son. And, you know, it's, it's quality Dolly, really. I think it is quality Dolly. It fair skitters along as well. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of stuff. There's lots of her influences. And I guess when you've been making music for as long as Dolly Parton's been making music, to put an album of 12 or 13 songs together and be able to draw on that incredible back catalogue there's a bit mm. of gothic blues there's a lot of bluegrass there's some fucking disney princess shit right at the end that did not float my boat dolly <laughs> apologies it's quite show tuney actually it feels a bit musical like because mm, yeah. she's got a strong storytelling ethic so it does have show tunes in it you said goth and i didn't realize she was the co-producer of buffy and sabrina <laughs> I know. She's everywhere. Every time you think you know Dolly, she's mm. just like smoke, whisper smoke. Else. She's a mystery. Fun fact there. So while we're with recent Dolly, mm. she's been in the news for stuff other than music over the past couple of years. I imagine lots of people know that she put in a million dollars for uh, COVID vaccine research, which led to Moderna. So we have bits of Dolly floating around in us. That but... is the best news anyone has ever given me. Imagine <laughs> just having a bit, uh, just a, a tiny amount of Dolly Parton just makes me feel like I can face the world a bit better. She posted her getting her own vaccine with a little photo saying, getting a dose of my own medicine. <laughs> oh, Dolly. I know, she's just so perfect. And she also did a version of Jolene where she changed Jolene to vaccine. She did. (laughs) And she wrote a pandemic song as well, actually, to keep everyone's spirits up when life is good again. You know, she's always thinking of other people. How's she going to do it? What do you need? She's got that huge heart, a really sparkling spirit and kind of unstoppable optimism, right? Yeah, it's very hard to to nail, actually. But I think what my favourite thing about her is um, she never apologises. I really, really love that about her. And once I noticed, it kind of becomes quite special because people obviously, you know, they attack her, they judge her, they she gets a lot thrown at her, she's been picketed, all sorts of things. But she smiles and she's polite and she never, ever says sorry. So even when people are quite aggressive towards her or a uh, loaded question about what she looks like or what she's doing and obviously her audience is completely vast and country music is quite maybe politically slightly backward arena you know like it's a bit homophobic and quite sort of right wing she won't ever say anything more controversial than i do the best i can mm-hmm. ultimately she's an entertainer and she never wants to sort of lose an audience but she's always being very, very progressive and making sure that she's putting how she feels across. It's like in the 70s, late 60s even, she was writing songs with quite controversial lyrics in terms of what would have been called women's lib at the time, but never in a way that she actually alienated her core audience. She never, ever said she was a feminist. She wouldn't label herself as such because that would lose a lot of people from yeah. her record buying public but it was always there in the fabric of everything she was doing but it, with a smile and a wink so she'd say things like i was the first to burn my bra but it took three days to put it out <laughs> <laughs> but it's still there she still says her statement uh-huh. but she turns it into a joke you know and if you get the joke in first nobody can have a go at you definitely she speaks her mind and yet remains a very savvy businesswoman. Mm. I think Without that can be quite hard to do, yeah. 
Uh, Linda Perry, a songwriter, very successful songwriter, said that she's mastered the art of being a successful woman, but without making men feel bad. <laughs> yeah, that's that's hard to do because they really they really want to feel bad. <laughs> like they're looking for it these days <laughs> kylie is very sage-like on dolly if anybody needs a way into dolly have a word with minogue she's quite nailed there's a bbc documentary actually that was, that was brilliant lots of great interviews in that but um she says she always gets the joke in before anybody else and that um she's able to get the feminist message out there whilst being pretty much in disguise yeah yeah, in disguises everything that a lot of people think feminism stands against yeah. as well. She's like a Trojan horse. She kind of, uh, <laughs> she looks like men want her to, and she gets in the door because of that, but she's fighting from the inside. Who wouldn't be flattered by that? <laughs> I hope so. She could bring down Troy, that woman. Hit me with more feminist dolly, please. <laughs> Okay, well, all right, so talking about feminism and Dolly, I mean, even things like Jolene, like, people kind of think, well, that's a song about cheating, and it's a song about jealousy, and it's a song about being insecure. It's also a song about women being incredible. The man doesn't feature in that song. He has no linear storyline, he has no voice, he gets to say nothing. Good, he sounds like an arsehole. <laughs> it's just insignificant. The beauty of that song is it's Dolly singing to Jolene and Jolene gets to say things, Dolly gets to say things, Jolene gets described. Jolene sounds absolutely fucking delicious. But it is a, it's a song about the beauty of women and women speaking to one another and who even is he? He's pointless. Well, I hope both of them got rid of him. She'll say it's about her husband, but she admits in an interview that she met a little girl who was called Jolene and she just thought it was a great name. Oh, that's <laughs> cute. I don't think, Liz, we can talk about Dolly Parton and feminism without talking about 9 to 5. No, so like 9 to 5 is one of the highest grossing comedy films of all time, which is kind of crazy. And I think it was the second highest grossing film of the year, which was absolutely unheard of for female leads. Mm -hmm. So that says an awful lot about how popular it was and that it really hit home and stuff. And the fact that she took the part, I mean, obviously she wasn't an actress and she felt quite unsure about being an actor unless she basically played herself. <laughs> but she said, I'll do it on the condition that I write the song. And she was on set, she, oh, she'll tell this story in all manner of different ways because of the Dolly mythology, but she said she was wandering around set and she was just doing this with her nails and then she was like, that sounds like a typewriter. And that's how it started. She was like, <laughs> I got it. And she said that she just kept writing verse after verse after verse to make the girls laugh. So it became like a hallelujah. <laughs> Every <are> very similar. <laughs> wheelhouse to be honest well she's a very religious woman she got all the women on the set to do backing on that film so they're all on the record and it was a very female experience um she learned everyone's lines for the whole movie because she wanted to understand every single person's point of view and there's a very cute thing where lily tomlin's talking about how um her and jane fonda and dolly parton used to go to hotels and try and have pajama parties get to know each other get some female camaraderie <laughs> and she said like we made confessions and we got to know each other, but Dolly always had that little bit of... Like, they didn't quite get to know her. She still got that I'm a legend thing, so she's like, I never saw her without her wig. <laughs> Fair enough. It's sort of like a self-protection thing. Absolutely. You know, the fact that Dolly is 24 hours is totally Dolly. Yeah. Keep a bit back for Dolly, even if that is just your natural hair. <laughs> yeah. Well, the fact she's so honest about that she's so false and all that, that you know it's a thing like she her lines are always things like it takes a lot of money to look this cheap and home is where i hang my hair 
But she, sometimes she doesn't even know. Like she's very, you know, she's a performer in the old school sense. So it's, you know, it's it's the laughter with the tears. So even when she sings songs like "Me and Little Andy," you know, this is so it's such a sad song about this kid and a dog dying from poverty and being underdressed and not being looked after. And so when she was growing up, there's twelve of them. They literally grew up in a one room cabin in the Tennessee mountains, and her younger near bro- the Little Pigeon River in Sevierville. <laughs> the myth and the legend doesn't it <laughs> could it be any more tragic but like each kid in the family was responsible for looking after the one that was younger than them and her younger brother larry died so like this you know little andy it's a very sad song but even when she sings it she'll be like that was so sad it was pitiful you know she has to make a joke at the mm. end she's an entertainer even when it's uh, there's a sadness there she's always thinking about not making people uncomfortable I think the thing about Dolly Parton as well, there's this whole mythology, like you said, you know, like theme parks, Dollywood, all of that stuff, the foundation she started, the Imagination Library where she gives free books to kids. She's a phenomenon. She's a philanthropist. She's a feminist. She's a role model. She's a businesswoman. She's also inordinately talented at what she does. Mm. So since her debut album in 1967, which was called Hello, I'm Dolly, and wow, what an introduction to the world, right? (laughs) She has composed more than 5,000 songs. She has sold more than 100 million records. And she's still at it. Yes. Well, and she's so much a brand that, you know, a bit like Aretha. Like, there's so many albums with Dolly in the name. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Hello, Dolly. A Dollywood, Dollyverse. Even Christmas films, it's like, have a Dolly Christmas. It doesn't even make sense. (laughs) I like it. I think she made the correct decision. Her legacy is just incredible and it won't ever end and it never stops. And she's she's got a slight George Michael tinge in that she actually doesn't talk about half the stuff she does unless she thinks it will further the cause. So mm-hmm. she's, she's quite secretive about a lot of the things she supports and she does. And they only really come to light when they do things like stop a pandemic. <laughs> yes. She pulls out the big guns. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, then, you know, it, it's kind of paved a way for people that... that might not be appreciated because you know she she is so larger than life and you know like there's some amazing talk show footage of her in the sort of 70s where uh, there's a female interviewer that says you know you're a beautiful woman you don't have to do this you realize you know you, you, you don't need to wear the things you do you don't need to behave the way you do dolly says like it's a choice i choose to do this because i want people's attention i don't want to look like other people i know i look ridiculous but once I've got people's attention, that's when I can do some good. That's when I can show them what I'm worth, and that's when I can actually get a message across. The stealing focus thing that she does, which is it's so intelligent. You know, so many people think the joke is on her. The joke is on everyone that doesn't get it. Yes, absolutely <laughs> agreed. She's very, very good at playing the sort of uh, the boob thing as well. You know, like people... Are, the qu- first question in so many 70s uh, male chat show things will be like, so let's talk about your biggest asset. And she's brilliant at laughing along. She never does the sort of like, oh, I feel a bit downtrodden or you've made me uncomfortable. She's always like, oh, I wonder what you were going to say then and then changes the subject. Like she'll play along with it. And it's so much part of the fabric of society that even things like, you know, Dolly the sheep, that's named after Dolly because the first cell in the cloned sheep was from a memory gland. But, you know, Dolly has made that her thing. There's a bridge in Alabama that's called the Dolly Bridge because it's got these sort of boob-like structures. Well, I feel better now because when I said she pulls out the big guns I nearly did go I don't mean her tits she Uh, would want you to do she would want that that one was for Dolly specifically for Dolly
She famously took part in a Dolly lookalike competition and didn't win. (laughs) (laughs) She is totally aware of how extreme she is. In fact, in that BBC documentary, I think somebody, whoever's interviewing her, says, how would you describe yourself? And the first thing she says is, calm down. (laughs) Calm down. I know I'm ridiculous. (laughs) She is ridiculous. Well, she, I mean, she's got the smallest waist you could possibly imagine. She, she's totally Roger Rabbit, her figure, but she's... I think she's more Jessica Rabbit than Roger. <laughs> He's a bit more straight up and down, isn't he? <laughs> she's really lanky with muscles, if you <laughs> Huge legs. Big, big thumper legs. <laughs> Great mates with Bob Hoskins. <laughs> that bit is true. <laughs> no. In the time that Dolly was living, like, you know, sort of thing, like 1967... She'll write songs like My Mistakes Are No Worse Than Yours Just Because I'm a Woman. During, you know, a time where equality needed marches and she was a sex symbol. Mm -hmm. It's the Trojan horse thing. She was managing to get these things across in disguise. It really has paved the way for other people in a way that I don't think is fully appreciated. Like, you know, she's kind of famous for her figure and stuff, but she never actually did nude Playboy spreads or something. There's a very famous picture of her dressed as a bunny. Roger Rabbit's on the cover. <laughs> You're obsessed with She's just as a male rabbit, I don't get it. But like, um, because of Dolly, you know, people like Brandy Carlyle will say she can be loud, she can be a female solo writer without the need for co-writers being forced on her, and she can be Christian and gay. You know, there's a certain mm. sort of, like, liberalness that's come, that's hard for... So, like, someone like Taylor Swift might not be obvious, but, like, Taylor Swift has been able to move from country to pop, which Dolly also did sort of around the nine to five era. She's beautiful and she's clever and people accept both of those things. She got her rights back. That's a massive thing for a woman in music. Uh, She got to do everything her own way without being seen as difficult. And she's very vocal whilst managing to stay popular. She doesn't alienate anybody. And that is Dolly Parton's career path. And, you know, that's what we see in Tay-Tay. Absolutely. I think T-Swiz should do some sort of hello, I'm Dolly, brackets, Taylor's version. (laughs) Yeah, rather than Miley Cyrus every five minutes. (laughs) So, Liz, I take it you were a big fan of Dolly. Who isn't? I mean, like 180,000 people at Glastonbury can't be wrong. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we bowl out the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. You may remember me chatting last week about Chelsea fans being, well, bellends and chanting the name of their Russian billionaire owner, Roman Abramovich, during a display of solidarity with the people of Ukraine and how I kind of lost sympathy with them over the possible impact of Abramovich selling the club as he had at that point announced he would well those pricks did it again at the weekend and even boris johnson thinks they're wankers with his spokesperson calling it completely inappropriate and asking for the fans to stop probably fair to say that at this point i have pretty much no sympathy at all for the chelsea fans as it was announced last week that roman abramovich would have his assets including chelsea football club frozen after he was sanctioned by the uk government it's a sort of The threat has been hanging in the air for a while and now it's actually happened. And what that means, although the club has been put under special licence and it can continue to operate, it cannot generate revenue. So matches can continue, 
but no new tickets can be sold. Like season tickets are fine. Tickets are already bought can be honoured. No new tickets can be sold. Programmes can't be sold. Other merchandise can't be sold. And in fact, nor can players. The club cannot buy or sell players. It cannot extend the contracts of existing players. And at the same time, Abramovich has also been disqualified by the Premier League as a director. This is undeniably a shit situation for the club to be in. Now, I was on the Tube in London on Sunday where I encountered some Chelsea fans on their way to watch the club's match against Newcastle United. Newcastle United, who, by the way, are definitely not owned by the Saudi Arabian government. Definitely not. There were two groups who were chatting to each other and a fan from one of the groups mournfully said, they're not even allowed to sell programmes. And another one said, what I don't understand, because curiously this chap was from the West Country, why he was okay to be a director then, but he's not now. This is an interesting statement, I think. Besides the very obvious reason that there was at the time no question that Roman Abramovich might be helping to bankroll an actual invasion of another country, directly or indirectly, this is actually a solid question. Why did the Premier League allow this to happen? We've always known where that money has come from. Why have a few extremely wealthy individuals been able to change the entire blueprint of the game of football in the name of an international dick-swinging contest? Why was that okay back then? And why is anyone surprised that extreme wealth has potentially come from unsafe resources. It's almost as if greed has fucked up literally everything about football and now we all have to live with the horrendous consequences. Let's move on to cricket, where, you know, the situation is equally bleak, if I'm honest. I'm following a comprehensive dismantling at the Ashes last month. It is looking bleak for England women at the Women's World Cup. Having lost all but one of their first four matches, England need to win the remaining four to progress to the next stage. So look, the losses have been pretty narrow. Three wickets against South Africa, seven runs against the West Indies, 12 runs against Australia. But when you look at the losses prior to those, it's hard to know where it's all gone wrong for the reigning world champions, the winners of the 2017 World Cup. It's also hard to see them turning around such a poor run in such a short space of time. But, you know, we'll keep our eyes on the situation and hope for the best. In tennis, there's a little light at the end of the tunnel somewhere as Emma Raducanu was knocked out of the third round at Indian Wells. That's not the light, by the way. But Harriet Dart, who came into the tournament via qualifying, has reached the fourth round. She beat 12th seed Alina Svitolina in the second round. By the time you hear this, you will know how she got on in the fourth round against 25th seed Madison Keys. That's all for me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which film that messed with any film reviewer who used the thumbs up system did we watch this week? (laughs) Did you like it, Willem? Oh, poor Willem. This week we watched 1996's The English Patient, released in the UK on the 14th of March 1997, giving the UK... 10 days to run out and watch it before the Oscars that year, in which it was nominated for a whopping 12 Academy Awards 
eventually winning nine. Those nine included The Big Ones, Best Film and Best Director for Anthony Minghella. Not bad for a lad from the Isle of Wight who started his career as a script editor on Grange Hill. Fact fans. Do, 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 do. Sorry. Such a good theme tune. He had, of course, already by this point written and directed the Alan Rickman classic, Truly Madly Deeply, and he went on to write and direct other big Hollywood films, The Talented Mr Ripley and Cold Mountain, before his untimely death in 2008. What I'm saying is, The English Patient and indeed Anthony Minghella were big news. The film benefited from an absolutely cracking and, dare I say, exceptionally beautiful cast. Devastatingly beautiful. Like, every oh single God. cast member is fucking gorgeous. I felt it's very, nuts, very isn't it? plain. <laughs> yeah. That beautiful cast includes... Ray Fiennes as the eponymous English in Bonnie Ears, patient. Fit. How beautiful is he? I had not. Eh. Oh, devastatingly handsome. Hannah's not impressed. She's. Uh... I don't remember thinking he was handsome when I watched it before, but yeah, really. There are a couple of really handsome dudes in this, but yeah. Well, well I'm sure we'll come on to that, Hannah. Anyway, Kristen Scott Thomas, also ridiculously Fit. beautiful. <laughs> As his love interest, ably supported by a cast including Willem Dafoe, Steady Hannah, <laughs> Juliet, <laughs> Juliet Binoche, fit. Colin Firth, Naveen Andrews, fit. so oh, fit, yes. so fit. <laughs> and I think we can all agree the fittest of them all, Kevin Waitley. Fit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm done. Anyway, a badly burnt man is brought into hospital. <laughs> I don't know why, but you made a badly burnt man sound really cheery. <laughs> a badly burnt man is brought to a hospital in Italy towards the end of the Second World War. He claims to have no memory of anything, including his own name, but speaks with an English accent. So he's the English patient, get it? He is tended to by sad nurse Juliet Binoche, a.k.a. Hannah, who takes him to a ruined monastery to see out his final days. She's fresh from someone she loves getting blown up en route, and she's like, why always me? Everyone dies on me. So what I'm saying is she's in a really good place, emotionally speaking, for this situation to kind (laughs) of run its course. Still, a haircut and a hot bomb disposal expert can do wonders for grief and escaping the trauma of war. She finds an Indian recruit, Kip. They're also joined by fellow bomb disposal expert, Hardy, and a thumbless Canadian spy, Caravaggio. Steady, Hannah. (laughs) He is played by Willem Dafoe, and he's pretty hacked off about the torture he suffered at the hands. I did not mean puns in either of those, but at the hands of the Germans. And he is, he's hell-bent on revenge, and he even wonders if our English patient might be a bit bloody Germanic, actually, and sort of responsible for said lack of thumbs. Did he, in fact, furnish the Germans with maps that might have helped their invasion of Egypt? Well, as we discover in flashback, he's not German. He's a Hungarian cartographer, Count Laszlo de Almasi, who was a real person, but whose story is very different from the imagining of him in Michael Ondarcha's novel, the basis for this film. Almasi is 
mapping the Sahara as part of a Royal Geographical Society archaeological and surveying expedition where he meets Geoffrey and his wife Catherine, played by Firth and Kristen Scott Thomas. Almasi and Catherine embark on an extramarital affair and, well, it, it doesn't end that well for them. The film is two hours and 47 minutes long and there's quite a bit more to it than this but I'm going to leave my plot summary there. As already discussed, the film was a huge critical success and was ranked number 55 in the BFI's top 100 British films. It was also a huge commercial success, raking in $232 million from a budget of around $30 million cash back. Mm, mm. Back of the net. Jurassic. <laughs> I saw this on VHS probably in 1997. I remember crying a lot. I didn't cry as much this time around, so my first question to you both is, how many times did you cry whilst re-watching this? How many times do you think, Jen? I think you didn't cry at all, Hannah, because I only cried be, once. But That would be correct, yes. Mick? I was very due on my period. I'd like you all to know that, but I cried three times. When did you cry? Small cries. I cried when Juliette Binoche was very sad about discovering that her fiancé had been killed in action. And then I cried when she was very upset about her friend being exploded. And then I cried at the end. Fair. I cried at the end. I didn't cry apart from that. I mean, no one likes to show off. So, as I said before, it is a long film and I watched it in two sittings, which I had planned to do. But actually, if it hadn't been so late and I didn't have to get up at the crack of dawn with a toddler, I could happily have watched it straight through. And I don't want to peek too soon here, but for me, that is a strong indication that I'm enjoying a film because, as previously discussed, I'd really like it if more films could just limit themselves to 90 minutes. Did you find it long? Yes, but the thing that struck me most about watching it was I had seen this before, and I know I've seen it before because I can remember you know, the person who discovered that I'd never seen The English Patient and forced me to watch The English Patient. I can remember watching it and I could tell you most of what happened in it. But huge chunks of it I didn't seem to remember at all. Mm. And it did feel long Was I started to wonder whether I was somehow watching a director's cut of it because, like I say, <laughs> there were scenes in it that I couldn't remember and it did feel like it was going on forever. But, interestingly, I chose to watch it in an afternoon and it took a whole afternoon. And I think maybe if I'd watched it in an evening and it took a whole evening, it wouldn't have seemed so long. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get that. That whole idea, you know, when you were a kid and you went to the cinema and you came out and it was dark. Mm. Yeah. And that's what it felt like watching The English Patient. I put it on in the afternoon and I went outside and it was dark. I went in knowing it was really long and the titles go on for like 24 hours, but... It didn't bother me at all because, again, I don't, I, I'm not going to peek too soon. I am. I'm going to say I, I think it's a beautiful film. So I was quite happy to sit there and, and watch watch all the devastatingly beautiful people do their thing. Again, I don't want to peek too soon here. But I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Shall we start with the women? Because I think one of them is a great character and one of them I think is quite annoying. Actually. Kristen Scott Thomas's character, I assume you think, is quite annoying. As Catherine. No, oh. I like her. I think she's a good character and I found Juliette Binoche really annoying. Oh, see, that's the complete opposite to me. This film is going to struggle with me because I don't particularly like romance. Mm. It, do it doesn't really do anything for me. But I found the half of the film, or maybe it's a bit, I don't know, literally, but let's call it half of the film, that had Juliette Binoche in it way more watchable than the half of the film that had Kristen Scott Thomas in it. I like both of them. And it can be a sucker for romance, but I think that I'd have liked to have seen more of Hannah and Kip 
a bit more of their story. Mm. And it, it's there's loads more detail on Kip in the book, which is fucking beautiful and well. Mickey worth wants writing. to see more of Kip. <laughs> just <laughs> that's it. And then just ask me if it's rated or dated, Jen, and we can move on. But I really like both storylines. An interesting thing about the women, because I looked this up, is that both Kristen Scott Thomas and Juliette Binoche are older than their romantic counterparts in the movie. So Scott Thomas was older than Ray Fiennes. I assume yes. she still is, but people do fiddle with their age. And Juliette Binoche is older than Naveen Andrews, which is very unusual in Hollywood. It is, yeah. And on a Harvey Weinstein movie as well. Except, interestingly, both Naveen Andrews and Ray Fiennes were famously in personally involved with women who were much older. Yeah, Barbara Hershey, wasn't it? Yeah. Naveen Andrews was in a relationship that. with for many years. Who yeah. was quite a lot older than him as well, I think. Yeah, about 20 years. Mm. Yeah. And and you're right, though, because Hollywood does usually reflect reality absolutely like a mirror. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I think Catherine's a really great character, actually. But she is very, very Kristen Scott Thomas, who I was a bit like, she's sort of the same in everything. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, she's kind of... I think it's fairish, yes. Yeah, strident, opinionated, got a lot of agency as she appears in, like, Fleabag most recently, I suppose, in people's mm. memory. But for it to be a woman who is like that in that era, I think is pretty striking. Mm. I think that's what I liked about the characters, because it did feel quite progressive, I guess, for that. It, I mean, obviously, this film was made in the 90s and based on a book, but I thought I liked the fact that she was so strident whereas i found juliet binoche a bit like just sad about everything which is fair enough you know she's got reason to be sad but it just i she just irritated me a bit like the bit where she's like kip open the door and talk to me you're like his mate's just been blown up on top of a statue leave him alone well or maybe she's quite rightly worried about him because his mate's just been blown up on top of a statue and and her mate just got blew up. <laughs> got blown up five minutes ago, so she's at least qualified to talk Not five about minutes, it. Hannah. Yeah. It's a very long film, at least 25 <laughs> minutes ago. You talk yeah. about the characters, the women being progressive, and of course, it, I think it's really good to see a woman in war in the way that mm. Juliette Binoche is like on the front yeah. line, she's doing stuff. But I also mentioned that Harvey Weinstein is involved. It was um, a Miramax movie. And gratuitous full frontal from Kristen Scott Thomas. And I yeah. didn't need to see Juliette Binoche's tits either. Just saying. I don't remember seeing Juliette Binoche's tits. There's a whole scene where the camera is just sort of... Her nipple is foregrounding a chat she's mm. having with Kip. You're our gratuitous tit spotter as I well. I know, I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't see that. Sorry, Jen, we're getting rid of you and bringing a 15-year-old boy in. <laughs> it's your own fault for asking to be put officially on your job description. <laughs> oh, I've failed. Hannah, mm-hmm. obviously you're not a fan of the romance genre, but you are a fan of, like, you know, historical stuff, war stuff. Did you enjoy any of that? I mean, there's not that much actual history in it, is there, so much? But yes, I mean, it looked, as in period detail, it looked good. It's that period right at the end of the war, isn't it? Most of it's taking place right at the end of the war. And I don't... Well, sort of, half of it takes place just before the war, and then the rest of it takes place at the end of the war, yeah. And so it kind of, it's not really about the war in that sense they're always very far away from it it's it's not anything that's like pressing on them i mean go back to the romance thing i think there is a some forms of romance appeal to me or some things i consider romantic and other people think i'm mad for saying which is what where i find it more interesting you know that juliet binoche situation 
with that's just two people who are having a really fucking hard time. Mm -hmm. Like, I find the idea of that way more romantic than this great sweep of this love that you can't have and carrying her to a cave and all of that stuff. I have to say that cave thing is partly ruined for me by an episode of King of the Hill in which (laughs) Hank and Con, (laughs) Hank and Con get lost in a, a cave system together and they get stuck there and Con is just furious that he's going to have to be stuck in a cave with Hank. And at one point he just stands up and shouts, I'm going to die like English patient girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and it just makes me laugh. Talking of romance, can I ask a question, please? Yes. I think, I'm hoping I already sort of know the answer from you both, but I'd just like to clarify how romantic you find it when a man kills his wife because he finds out she's been having an affair. Romance, oh yeah, romantic, yeah. He does it for me because he does it's own really her. romantic. Oh, I'd kind of never noticed that before. But the whole when she was saying and he shouts, "I love you, Catherine. I love you so much." It's like I love you so much that I must kill you. No, that is not love. Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to highlight how shit that is. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about Al Massey because he's a bit of a prick as well, isn't he? Oh, he's a lost poetic baronic soldier. <laughs> It's the stuff I don't like. It's that grand gesture sweeping, you know. I mean, I find it quite weird that at the start, and maybe you're supposed to find it weird, is that when Colin Firth says, oh, yeah, first we were like brother and sister. Yeah, Wowzers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a marriage built on a a not great foundation. But there you have it. I thought it was interesting what you just said, Hannah, about like the different kinds of romance. Because I think one of the like really lovely romances in it, as, as it were, is between Kip and Hardy. Yes, that is lovely. When he says, you know, we never spoke about our personal lives at all. And Hannah says, yeah, but you, you loved him. And he's he's kind of confused as to why he feels so much that his, his mm. mate has died. But yeah, he loved him. And it is really lovely. I agree with you. It's, again, more Kip. If we could ask for one thing, be more Kip and presumably Hannah, more Willem Dafoe. I mean, there's a good amount of Willem Dafoe in this, I think, yeah. That scene, though, where we discover why Caravaggio doesn't have any thumbs is one of the best scenes in the film. It's electric, Mm. and, you know, it's because Dafoe is incredible. But it isn't what the film is about, so that's why we only get that snapshot and that, like, sort of flashback. But it's so good. It's so striking. I don't think there is one performance in this that I think is bad. No, agreed. No. I agree, I agree with that. It's really visually beautiful as well. And not just the people, uh, obviously, but I mean, like, it's a real feast for the eyes, I think. I think it's worth mentioning, and I say this as someone who hasn't read the book and who isn't a huge fan of, of the film. I mean, I agree with everything you say. It looks beautiful and all of that. It's just not, not my for bag. You. Yeah, sure. But it is worth saying to its credit, for a long, long time, The English Patient, like all great novels, it was considered utterly unfilmable. So the fact that it it achieved what it achieved with such high sort of levels of expectation on it and also such high levels of failure on it. There's so many people were going to go in and go, no, it's not what I wanted. Mm. I have read the book and it's labyrinthine. It's like there's so much detail. And I think you're absolutely right, Hannah. Like what it captures is incredible. And I think, you know, there's been complaints that it is really detailed. Oh, he's lost his memory, but he can remember things in infinite detail. Well, one, memory works in weird ways. Two, he's sort of piecing things together. Mm. But three, that actually does justice to the book because that does go into such beautiful lyrical detail about stuff. It has been yeah. voted one of the worst best pictures of all time, though. 
Mainly really? because it beat hmm. Fargo. Ooh. Okay, and possibly because of a backlash towards Harvey Weinstein. No, no, this was at the time. Oh, was it before? Oh, okay, that's interesting. There was something else that I felt like I should mention. I did do some reading around it. The real English patient is believed to have been gay. They obviously weren't going to put that in the plot of this because, you know... Hollywood wouldn't have stood for a, a gay romance in 1996. But it's interesting that they do have some suggestion that there is a gay mm. character and then it is skipped over quite quickly, I think. Or basically what it says is if you are gay, then you'll cause a car crash. I think actually was the message of the film there. Yeah, I suppose. Because it's such a minor character that they have involved in that storyline, you're right. It is, is it good it's there rather than it not being there at all? Or do you feel it's so dismissed that it would have been better not to bring it in? It's not even fully stated. It's like it's coded in there somewhere. But isn't it that coded is... for Al Massey, but Al Massey notices and he like lets his mate know it's okay? But I think quite a lot of viewers might not necessarily have picked up so much on that hello i didn't <laughs> i'm just about to go oh we can't we can't help stupid people hannah but uh, take that out <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't notice that jack nicholson was it was in the film twice that is true in... if you've got a spare three and a half hours Jen, watch should... it again yeah well our old mate roger ebert said that it's the kind of film you need to watch twice once for the questions the second time for the answers i know it's not your bag hannah and like i totally get it because if you're not into it, then it will feel slightly interminable. But I have seen mm. it a lot. And I was a bit like, oh, I've seen this a lot. Am I going to still enjoy it the 20th time round? And the answer was yes. So I'm I'm on Roger's side here. <laughs> it's not a mystery to me why people like mm. this. It's just not for me. Fair enough. Similarly, interestingly... The same person who made me watch this made me watch Cold Mountain. Oh, are you all right? You still have flashbacks to Jude Law's face in that, don't you? Yeah, and I was like, I don't like Nicole Kidman. I don't like Renee Zellweger. I really don't like Jude Law. I don't think I'm going to like this film. And it has a similar vibe to it in that, yeah, I can understand why people like it. But it, it, again, it, it wasn't for me. What was it about Jude Law? Did you say he's got the kind of face that you'd expect to see looking at you through a window? <laughs> no. No, I expect you wake up. You wake up and you look up and there's someone in the room. That's that's what Jude Law's eyes look like to me. <laughs> Some yeah. people would like genuinely pay good money to wake up and find Jude Law in their bedroom. But Oh my God, it whatever. was horrifying. <laughs> Well, guys, on that bombshell, shall we ask? <laughs> shall, shall we ask the question? Rated or dated? Rated. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say rated by virtue of the fact that it's not dated. Fair enough. It's big fat rated from me, despite having apparently missed. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very <laughs> subtle plot line. Part of it again. Yeah. Whose turn is it next week? It's my turn next week, and we are travelling back in time to 1992. To watch My Cousin Vinny. Ooh. Somebody suggested that to us on Twitter. I know. Thank you very much, Catherine. You saved me a job. (laughs) (laughs) Standard issue for all women.